How do you view the sin of other people? Turn to Luke chapter 15. Do you see the sin of others as a disease that you are inoculated from? You know, I've been saved, so I've gotten the shot, and I'm kind of immune to those types of evil, terrible sins. Do you despise other people who sin in more egregious ways than you do? Do you despise when God forgives their sins and leads them on to genuine repentance? Does it bother you when God's mercy triumphs over judgment in other people's lives? And if your answer is yes to any of those questions, it could be that you don't appreciate the grace that God has shown to you. You don't understand what God has done for you. It could be that you have never genuinely repented. Because those who have received mercy from God will show mercy to others. And God loves to pursue the outcast, the rebel, the sinners. And that's why His love is so amazing. Because I was the outcast. I was the rebel. I was the sinner. And yet God pursued me. And that's why we love His mercy so much. That's why we can enjoy His mercy on other people. When God pours out His mercy on people who we think, those people are so self-righteous. They don't deserve God's grace. And that's actually uh, an oxymoron, is it? isn't it? They don't deserve God's grace. Because that's exactly what grace is. It's God's undeserved, unmerited, unwanted favor. And that's what God showed to us. And if we don't see that God is good in pouring out His grace on someone who has sinned, even in an egregious way, then we don't understand what God has done for us. Let me read our passage for us tonight. Luke chapter 15, and I'll begin with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Him to listen to Him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, 
and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be and said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you never have given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and he was lost and has been found. These three parables really go together. And in order for us to understand the parables, we need to know at least three things about the parables. First, we need to know the occasion of the parable. Okay, so anytime you're looking at parables, it's helpful to know what the occasion of why did Jesus speak these things? What was the reason for Him bringing up this parable? What were the circumstances that surrounded His teaching of this parable? Notice the circumstances in verse 1. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Him to listen to Him. So Jesus is hanging out with the outcasts, the rebels. And that's the occasion for this parable, these three parables. second thing we need to know is the audience of the parables. Now, not all, we don't always know that, but in this one we happen to know. Look at verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So we have at least, listening to this parable, the Pharisees and the scribes, but look at verse, um, look at uh, chapter 14 at the end of the passage there, verse 35. It is useful either for... The, Useless either for the soil or for the manure piles thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, it seems to me that that this is a continuation of what Jesus had been teaching to His disciples, to a large crowd. And the Pharisees and scribes happen to be listening in. And in this case, they see Him sitting with sinners, outcasts, tax collectors. And it doesn't make sense to them. And the implication in chapter 15, verse 1, is that the tax collectors and sinners who were the, were the ones who were actually listening to Him. In verse 1, 
they were all coming and listening to him. So at least it seems like they're there, the Pharisees and the scribes are there, and probably some other disciples. So know the occasion, know the audience, and then thirdly, know the limits of the parable. Know the limits of the parable. I've heard this passage preached, and perhaps you have as well, and every single detail about this parable, particularly the third one, the prodigal son. Every single detail was given a spiritual meaning. It was it was so uh, detailed that it was like every single part of this parable has a specific meaning. And what I would say is that we need to understand the parable to the extent that Jesus intended. Okay, I think it's wrong to take parables or analogies and take them to the farthest extremes to take make every detail work spiritually to spiritualize every part of it. We need to recognize only the points of comparison that Jesus intended. And this really is some work on our part. We need to think carefully. But let's just take an example. Jesus, when He said in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. And that branches that don't bear fruit will be what? They'll be cut off. Okay? So, if we took that parable to its farthest extreme and tried to take every part of that parable and put a spiritual meaning to it, what would we have to say about branches that are being cut off? And someone lost their salvation. Okay, so we can't go to the farthest extreme. What Jesus is saying is those who are genuinely connected to Me, the vine, are, have spiritual attachment and they will bear fruit. That's the real test. So we need to make the points of comparison where Jesus makes the points of comparison. And that's why we can't press these three parables to mean anything more than what Jesus intended. So we need to look for the clear points of comparison between the parable and the truth that He's making and then draw conclusions from there. So know the, the occasion for the parable, know the audience, and know the limits of the parable. And that will help us uh, go a long way in understanding them properly. In Luke 15, we have three parables that all have the same point but each of them contribute more truth to that same point. Okay, First, the lost sheep. We have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost what? son. Okay, Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. All put together, all in response to what had just happened. Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees are grumbling, saying, how could you possibly do that? And Jesus responds by saying, let me tell you a story about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. First, lost sheep, verses 3 to 7. In each of these three parables, we have something lost, something found, the response, and then the divine application. I considered actually making that the outline for tonight. Something lost, something found, um, the response that is one of rejoicing, and then the divine application. But I think a better way to think about these parables is to notice the action on the part of the person who lost something. And so I'm going to make this our outline. It is... The person searches, the one who lost something, he searches, and then he rejoices, and then Jesus gives a divine application. Okay, So those are the three points under each of these parables. First, the shepherd searches, verses 3 and 4. The shepherd searches. So first, we have something lost. We have a sheep that is lost, and this parable highlights the helplessness of a lost sheep. Because a lost sheep outside of the fold is as good as dead, particularly when there are ravenous animals that want to kill them. And so the shepherd works hard to find this lost sheep. Anybody relate with this? Anyone? Okay, some people can relate with the lost sheep. 
Uh, so the, the shepherd searches for the lost sheep, and then, verses 5 and 6, the shepherd rejoices. The shepherd rejoices, verses 5 and 6. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep, which was lost. Here the shepherd rejoices and throws a party with his friends to rejoice with him. One thing that we should note about verses 4 through 6 is that verses 4 through 6, look at that in your text, verses 4 through 6 are all one interrogative sentence. What do I mean by interrogative? It's in the form of a question. Okay, so look at the text. Notice verse 4 is all in the form of a question, but the translators of the New American Standard put verses 5 and 6 in a declarative sentence because they didn't they couldn't think of a way to take that long of a sentence and make it into one question. It's just it doesn't work as well in our language and so I think this is an appropriate translation. But what you need to recognize is that in the Greek language this was all one sentence and it was all one question. And that's how Jesus spoke it. He asked it in the form of a question. And this question could be summarized as follows. I'm not going to give all the details that he gave, but it would be something like this. What shepherd who loses a sheep does not search for it and then rejoice with his friends when he finds it? What shepherd, when he loses a sheep, does not search for it and then rejoice with his friends when he finds it? That's the question Jesus is asking. And do you know what the implied answer is? No shepherd would do that. No shepherd would neglect to search for his sheep and he, no shepherd would neglect to rejoice after having found it. Jesus is saying, yes. That's the case. When a shepherd loses his sheep, he, he, he searches diligently for it. And when he finds it, he rejoices passionately for it, for its being found. And the point is, is that the hearer should agree with this. right? The hearer should agree that, yes, I would search for a sheep. Yes, I would rejoice with my friends. And that leads us to the divine application in verse 7. I tell you, Okay, so Jesus pulls away now from His parable and He applies it to us by saying, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, keep in mind the issue that Jesus is addressing in verse 2. The Pharisees and scribes are grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. With them. And so Jesus responds by saying, do you know heaven rejoices? When these sinners come to repentance, Pharisees hate sinners. But God loves to pursue sinners. And God loves to rejoice when they repent. And this is the refrain that we're going to see in each parable. Look at verse 10. I'll just give you a little preview. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 32. But we had to celebrate, the Father says, this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been been found. Okay, so this is what happens when sinners come to repentance. God rejoices. It's easy to understand joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. But what does Jesus mean here in verse 7? That He has somehow less joy over 99 righteous people who need no repentance? What does that mean? Well, we'll come back to that one at the end. So, we have a shepherd who loses a sheep. And it's one thing to lose one sheep out of 100, but it's another thing to lose one coin out of 10. And that's the next story that we have, a lost coin, verses 8 through 10. Again, we have 
the person who lost something searching and then rejoicing. So first, the woman searches in verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? We have a similar, similar situation where a woman loses something of great value. This coin that was lost is literally one Greek drachma, which is similar to a Roman denarius, which is basically one day's wage. And so, this was a significant amount of money. In order to find a coin like this in a house in Israel, a person would have to light a lamp, since there would be no windows, and the floors were made of dirt, so it would require a great amount of searching. Down on your hands and knees. And the point is, is that yes, she would do that. That's why the, the text is, is in the same way, this Greek sentence from which we get our English sentence. Okay, this is also one interrogative sentence, verses 8 and 9. Notice that the question in our translation ends at the end of verse 8. But Jesus actually asked the question all the way through verse 9. And he would, he would be asking something like this. What woman who loses a coin would not search for it and when she found it would not rejoice with her friends? And the implied answer is no woman would do that. No woman would neglect to, to, ne- neglect to search for something of great value like that and no woman would fail to rejoice once she found that money with her friends. She would, she would not fail to rejoice with her friends having found that money. And that's in fact what she does do, verse 9. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me! I found the coin which I had lost. She throws a party with her friends to rejoice with her because what was once lost has now been found. So we have the woman searching, the woman rejoicing, and then, similar to the first parable, we have a divine application in verse 10. Jesus says, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now we might think that only the angels are rejoicing, but look at the text carefully. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels. So who actually is rejoicing? Who is in the presence of the angels? It's God. Now, that doesn't exclude the angels. I believe the angels are rejoicing with God. But God is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. This is our God. He loves to pursue sinners. He loves to search them out. And then He loves to rejoice with His friends when they come to repentance. So it's one thing to lose one sheep out of a hundred. It's another thing to lose one coin out of ten But it's an even more serious thing to lose one son out of two. And that's what we see here in verses 11 through 32. The lost son. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. The lost son, we have the same thing here. It begins with the father searching, and then him rejoicing, and then a divine application. First, the father searches in verses 11 through 21. The father searches. In the first two parables, we have a loss of an object stated in a few words. Look at verse 4. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, and here's all we know about it being lost, and has lost one of them. We have those four, five words that tell us that it was lost. Look at verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins, and loses one coin. We have those three or four words that tell us that the coin was lost. 
But here, in the parable of the lost son, we have verses 11 through 19 that talk about how the, the son was lost. The son did not want to wait until his dad died to receive his inheritance. He wanted it now. And as the youngest of two sons, he was entitled to one-third of his estate since the oldest son received a double portion. So it was as if he were two children. So the oldest son gets two portions. The younger son gets one portion. And the father allowed the son to get his request. But he would first have to divide the estate, the livestock, the land, the building, the equipment, and give it to the son. Here's your portion. And then the son would be responsible to sell those things. Notice what he does here at the end of verse 12. So he divided his wealth between them. So it sounds like this, the older son might have gotten his portion as well. Now, maybe the, God, the, the father said, I'm still going to hold on to it for you and I'm still, still going to manage it and when I die, it'll be yours. But it sounds like he divided the state completely and gave it to his, each of his sons. Well, after the younger son receives his portion, he sells everything that he has, converts it to money, and goes on a trip to spend his money Notice on what? Verse 13. At the end of the verse, he squandered his estate with loose living. His brother would later call it prostitution, and that very well could have been included, but the text isn't clear. Uh, the older son might have been just embellishing things. Well, things went from bad to worse for the son. Not only was he out of favor with his father now, not only had he spent all of his money, but now a famine comes in verse 14. When he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. He spent all that he had. Famine came and wiped out all the rest of his possessions. They decreased in value or worth nothing. He would have had to sell them all to stay alive. He had nothing left to his name. No favor with his father. And so, verses 15 and 16, he gets a job. Who does he get a job for? A Gentile pig farmer. About the lowliest thing a Jewish boy could do. Working for a Gentile, feeding the pigs, and wishing he could eat with them. Nothing lower that a Jew could do. Abandoning his family, abandoning his heritage, and no life to show for it. And in verse 17, he's sitting with the pigs, watching them eat, and he had this thought. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? You know, I'm not getting treated the best by this Gentile pig farmer. My dad would treat me a lot better. Even if I were just a hired slave, I don't even have to be reestablished, reconciled back to him as his son. He'd, he'd bring me back and, and, and he'd hire me on. But in verses 18 and 19, he also recognized that if he's going to go back to his dad, he has to confess his sin to his dad and to God. Verse 18, I will get up and go to my father. And now he rehearses what he's going to say to his father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. It is at this point that the son repents. This, this ties it back to what we've been looking at in the previous two parables. Right? We had the lost sheep, the lost coin, and now the lost son. But here we actually see 
what was the purpose of the lost sheep? Or what's the connection between how God looks at sinners? He loves to pursue sinners who repent. He loves to rejoice over them. What we see here is that this sinner is repenting. He sees his sin now as God sees it. And he's willing to acknowledge it to his Father and to God. Notice a further sign of repentance in verse 19, that he's willing to accept the consequences of his sin. Look at the last line. Make me as one of your hired men. He doesn't say, hey, I deserve to be reestablished as your son because after all, I'm flesh and blood. No, he says, you know what? I don't deserve to be your son. The, The most I deserve is to be your slave, your servant. And so will you take me as that? He's willing to accept the consequences of his sin. And after having rehearsed what he would say to his dad, he goes back to him. Verse 20. And here is where we see a similarity between the father and the characters in the first two parables. This is where we see the father actually searching out the son. Notice the father in verse 20 is not waiting for his son to come to him, but instead he's like the shepherd and the woman And he is actively seeking for that which was lost. Look at verse 20. So he got up, the young son, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Father is actively seeking out the repentance of his son. And when his son returns, he recognizes what's going on. That he's willing to acknowledge his sin and accept responsibility for what he had done. And notice what happens in verse 21. The son begins to recount what he is feeling about his sin against his father. Verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Hey, there's the idea that he, he recognized that he sinned against heaven to God. And in your sight, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And what was the next line he was going to say? Look at the end of verse 19. Make me as one of your hired men. But do you notice what happens here? The father cuts him off. He recognized that his son had repented and he's not going to accept his son, uh, allow his son to finish what he was going to say. Instead, the father said this in verse 22. Quickly, bring out the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life. And he was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. He can't get out the part about him wanting to be a hired servant because his dad cuts him off and starts the celebration early. In verses 22 through 24, so first we have the father searching Okay, we, we have this long section about the, the son being lost. And then we have the father searching. He's waiting for him. He's ready to run to him. Offer, for him, offer to him his forgiveness. And now, after having searched and found his son, what does he do? Verses 22 to 24, the father rejoices. We already saw the, a preliminary celebration in verse 20 by the father. But now he calls all of his household to join in the celebration. He says, Let's, let's have a party. Make my son, my once lost son, the honored guest. And we're going to have a great feast to his honor. The son was lost and now is found. He was dead and now is alive. Verse 24. 
And you know, if this parable ended here, we could tie up these three parables with a nice little bow and say, God loves to save sinners. But you know there's more to the story in verses 25 to 32 where Jesus adds another facet to the diamond of His teaching. And He says, there's something else going on here. It's not just that God loves to save sinners. In verses 25 to 30, we see the older brother complaining. He hears the news of his lost brother returning in verses 25 through 26 after having been out in the field. And he finds out that there's this huge banquet going on being thrown in honor of the one who squandered all of his father's possessions. Notice his response in verses 28 to 30. But he, the older son, became angry and was not willing to go in to the party that is. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The difference between a fattened calf and a young goat is the difference between a steak dinner and a hot dog lunch. Okay, He's saying, listen, you gave him a big steak dinner and you never even grilled a hot dog for me. He's quick to point out the sin of his younger brother. He squandered all of his living. But the point is, the point that Jesus is trying to show us, I believe, is that the older brother was unwilling to accept the younger brother as part of the family. He's saying the younger brother had committed an unforgivable uh, unforgivable sin in his mind. Look at the hatred of the older brother here in the text. First of all, he never calls his father, father. And then he never even owns up to his own brother. Verse 29, but he answered and said to his father, look. So he doesn't say, hey, dad, father. Instead, he just says, look, you. For so many years, I've been serving you. And so on. Look at verse 30. But when this son of yours, he doesn't say this brother of mine, does he? But in contrast, the younger brother constantly is calling his dad father. He wants to acknowledge his place in the family. This older brother, I believe, is blind to his own sin and he is in need of repentance. In verses 31 to 32, we have more of the story, more of the parable that is being recounted for us, but I think it actually serves as the divine application. So verses 31 and 32, the divine application. And I think by now you see who the main characters in the story are, who Jesus is trying to say. The shepherd, the woman, and the father are all like whom? They're all like God, right? The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son are all like whom? Like the tax collectors and sinners in verse 1. And the older brother is like whom? The Pharisees and the scribes who are grumbling in verse 2 by saying, this man, Jesus, he eats with sinners. And he has a relationship with them. He received them. But in this third parable, we have a surprising twist. It was once that the younger brother was on the outside of his father's blessing, wasn't he? But by the end of the story, he's on the inside. He's welcomed back into the father's family. And at once, the older brother used to be on the inside, wasn't he? And by the end of the story, where is he? 
and the outside. He's not in. He doesn't have anything to do with this feast. And so Jesus didn't do this whole parable in one long question. Okay, so I'm not going to tell you that. That's the way it is in the Greek. Okay, that's not the way it is. But let's just continue that idea over into this parable and think about how Jesus might might talk about this parable in the form of a question. He would say something like this, What father who lost his son would not actively search for him? And then once he had found him, would not celebrate, would not passionately rejoice? And the implied answer is, no father would neglect to search for his son. And no father would fail to passionately rejoice when he was returned, when he had repented. But I think Jesus is making another point in this third parable to drive home what he is trying to say to the audiences, the Pharisees and the scribes. And he's getting them to answer this question. What older brother, when his younger brother was lost, would not actively search for that younger brother and when he found him, would not rejoice having found him? And the the implied answer is an unbelieving one. Someone who hasn't experienced the mercy of God for themselves. That's the one who wouldn't search after his younger brother. That's the one who would give up on him. That's the one who wouldn't rejoice when he came to repent. That's the one who would hate the grace of God being shown to that younger brother. It's an unbelieving one. And yet notice in verse 31, God doesn't give up on the Pharisees and the scribes. This is amazing. And He said to him, Older son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. God still is pursuing this sinner. He's saying, you self-righteous Pharisees, I'm not done with you. The Father will rejoice over you repenting as well. And He's still actively searching for your repentance. He's not done with you. Why don't you come and join in the celebration? The main problem that the Pharisees had against Jesus on this occasion is that He showed mercy to sinners and that He identified with them. He received them, as it says in verse 2. And Jesus' response in the form of three parables is, Yes, I do receive sinners. Yes, I do show mercy to sinners. And so does the Father. Now let's look back at verse 7 because I said we'd go back and answer this question. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. We could say the same thing about the nine coins that were never lost. And we could say the same thing about the older brother who never needed to repent. But there's more joy over one coin that is found than over nine coins that never were lost. There's, one, there's more joy over one son that was lost over, rather than the one son who never was lost. But I think if we want to answer this question, what does Jesus mean when He says He has less joy effectively than, 99, than when 99 righteous persons need no repentance? And we, could, we could do this I recognize, and I think that Jesus is speaking sarcastically. We could put these in air quotes to help us. Okay, look at verse 7 again. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That's all true. 
than over, and here comes the air quotes, 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You see who he's talking about? Jesus is saying, you self-righteous Pharisees and scribes, you don't understand my joy. You don't understand the joy of my Father when sinners repent because you don't think you need it. You are so self-righteous. Jesus, or, or God, takes more joy in a lost sinner, these outcasts, these rebels who come to repentance than you self-righteous Pharisees who don't think you need repentance. The real tragedy is that all of these blessings that the Father gives to these sinners were offered to the Pharisees and the scribes as well. They were standing there right at His disposal. And that's why the Father says to the older son, Son, I... Everything that I have is yours. There's no need to throw a party over you. They're all at your disposal, but because of your self-righteousness, I think the point is, you missed out. So there are two main points that Jesus is trying to make, I think. And they go along with the, the sub-points of each of our parables. Number one, God the Father diligently seeks lost sinners. God the Father diligently seeks lost sinners. And then number two, God the Father passionately rejoices over repentant sinners. God seeks lost sinners and He rejoices over repentant sinners. Here's the application for us. God takes joy when we genuinely repent of our sin. God loves to see our contrition God loves to see when we confess our sin as sin. When we say to God what God says about our sin. We acknowledge it before Him. God takes joy in that. Obviously, this is primarily talking about that initial time when we come to saving faith. I think there's an implication here for our ongoing Christian life as well. God takes joy in the repentance of sin. The second application is that God is the one who searches out lost sinners. God is the one who searches out lost sinners. He's looking for people to add to His fold, to add to His family, to join in His family by adopting them as sons. That's our Father. He's not the the, the grump that's often portrayed of Him. That's sitting up in heaven saying, I don't need any more. I'm holy enough on my own. I don't need you. And I'm not searching for any of you. If you come on my terms, I'll accept you. That's not our God. He's like the shepherd who loses the sheep and happily goes after him because he wants to see that sheep restored. He's like the woman who loses the coin and gives all of his effort to search for this coin so they can find it. And he's like the father who's waiting on the porch. So that when one sinner repents, he's ready to Our Father is ready to forgive. And then thirdly, we who have experienced God's grace should not despise someone else who is a recipient of it. We who have received God's grace should not despise when God pours it out on someone else. You see, the self-righteous see themselves as responsible and obedient and obedient and even deserving of God's mercy. But the great test for us 
whether we're, we're truly a part of the family of God is how we respond when someone else has shown mercy. So let me ask you, does it please you when sinners experience the consequences of their sin? Aha! I knew they were terrible sinners. I knew they were deserving of those consequences. Or does it grieve you that a professing believer has turned their back on God and has taken all their blessings and squandered them on loose living? What about when they're restored? Does it bother you when God restores someone who has sinned more egregiously than you have ever sinned in your life? Or do you take pleasure in seeing God's grace poured out on them? like you poured it out on you. Or are you so self-righteous that you'd rather see them crash and burn? You see... Those who haven't experienced God's grace will despise those who have. But those who have experienced the mercies of God will be there at the banquet rejoicing with God over the repentance of lost sinners. Let's pray. Why were we made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands could have made the choice would rather starve than come? Lord, what did we do to deserve your grace? Obviously, that's a question that is a rhetorical question. We didn't. We did nothing deserve your grace and yet you poured out your mercy upon us and you do it time and again even though you know even when we repent following our salvation that we're going to sin again and maybe even worse yet you give us full forgiveness each time we confess our sins you are faithful and just to forgive us you don't forgive us with a caveat well I'll forgive you if Forgive us unconditionally. Certainly that doesn't mean that we are removed from the consequences of our sin. But it does mean that you restore us to proper place as sons and daughters of you. How can we, who have been forgiven such an insurmountable debt, not be willing to forgive those who have sinned against us? Or have sinned in worse ways than we can imagine? Lord, we must not be like the older brother. Lord, we want to be like the father who's actively pursuing lost sinners and taking great joy when they come to repentance. And I pray that you would remove the walls of our self-righteousness so that we can see the grace that you poured out on us and so that we can rejoice when we see your grace poured out on others. 
Lord, we pray that for the believers that we know. And we pray that you'd pour out your grace upon the unbelievers that we know as well. Because we do long to see this church full of all the chosen race. We just fill up this room with loud singing of praise because of the Lamb who was slain. Because of the mercy that you've shown to them. Lord, turn our hearts tonight toward you. Forgive us for where we have failed you and become self-righteous. Help us to live in light of your mercy, always willing to forgive like you, our Father. We pray in Jesus' name.